Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. My name is Martina Espada. This book is called Floaters. And this poem is called Death Rides the Elevator in Brooklyn. On a winter morning in 1968, my father left to walk the picket line. He rode the elevator in his black coat hood over his head in the hour before daybreak. On the third floor, the doors opened. A white man waiting for the elevator stood there, peered at my father in his black coat and hood in his brown skin, then screamed and fled. The doors closed. My father laughed on the picket line that morning. He laughed for years. The guy thought I was death, he would say. Death rides an elevator in Brooklyn. Mugger, death. Militant, death. Puerto Rican, death. Listening to the story, as the screaming man screamed louder with every telling, I never thought one day my father would be the man standing there waiting for the elevator doors to open. He did not stare or scream or run. He stepped into the elevator and the doors closed behind him. And that was Picket Line Poetry by Martin Espada by way of introduction to the fiery speech inaugurating the historic strike against the greed of Wall Street financed Hollywood East and West. Here's SAG after President Fran Drescher delivering those passionate words against worker exploitation and oppression against not just actors, but talking really about all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Duncan. And thank you, everybody, for coming to this press conference today. It's really important that this negotiation be covered because the eyes of the world, and particularly the eyes of labor, are upon us. What happens here is important because what's happening to us is happening across all fields of labor by means of when employers make Wall Street and greed their priority and they forget about the essential contributors that make the machine run. We have a problem, and we are experiencing that right at this moment. This is a very seminal hour for us. I went in in earnest thinking that we would be able to avert a strike. The gravity of this move is not lost on me or our negotiating committee or our board members who have voted unanimously to proceed with a strike. It's a very serious thing that impacts thousands, if not millions of people all across this country and around the world. Not only members of this union, but people who work in other industries that service the people that work in this industry. And so it came with great sadness that we came to this crossroads, but we had no choice. We are the victims here. We are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. We stand in solidarity, in unprecedented unity. Our union and our sister unions and the unions around the world are standing by us as well as other labor unions. 
because at some point the jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business. Who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family? Most of Americans don't have more than $500 in, a, in an emergency. This is a very big deal, and it weighed heavy on us. But at some point, you have to say, no, we're not going to take this anymore. You people are crazy. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Privately, they all say, we're the center of the wheel. Everybody else tinkers around our artistry, but actions speak louder than words. And there was nothing there. It was insulting. So we came together in strength and solidarity and unity with the largest strike authorization vote in our union's history. And we made the hard decision that we tell you as we stand before you today, this is major, it's really serious, and it's going to impact every single person that is in labor. We are fortunate enough to be in a country right now that happens to be labor friendly. And yet, we were facing opposition that was so labor-unfriendly, so tone-deaf to what we are saying. You cannot change the business model as much as it has changed and not expect the contract to change, too. We're not going to keep doing incremental changes on a contract that no longer honors what is happening right now with this business model that was foisted upon us. What are we doing? Moving around furniture on the Titanic? It's crazy. So the jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect and to be honored for our contribution. You share the wealth because you cannot exist without us. Thank you. And now on Arts Express, with actors on the picket lines fighting for their existence, both as actors against the ruthless movie corporations but existence as human beings as well. But with the ruthless movie corporations poised to replace their human personas with AI replicants, some like director, screenwriter, and actor Kevin Smith, up to the challenge of creating unique independent movie venues their way. In this case, the Jersey filmmaker's own movie theater, with the inventive marriage as well of film and internet presentations on the premises of Smod Castle Cinemas, and what that focus on Hollywood Babble On is all about, as Smith has moved on from a suicidal mental crisis coming out of, quote, a weird dark place to this optimistic and innovative destination. First, some scenes from his worker classic Clerks, then Kevin Smith. Throughout history, they have been a part of our American life. Men and women who have made it their mission to serve their fellow man. They've worked hard enough. Isn't it time? They had their own movie. Clerks. This job would be great if it wasn't for the customers. I, I don't bother them and they don't bother me. I could do without the people in the video store. Do you have that one with that guy who was in that movie that was out last year? You should hear the barrage of stupid questions I get. What do you mean there's no ice? You mean I gotta drink this coffee hot? You'd feel a hell of a lot better if you just rip into the occasional customer. <laughs> 
You're a clerk, paid to do a job. You can't just do anything you want while you're working. Hey, you open? What kind of convenience store do you run here? Clerks, just because they serve you doesn't mean they like you. You hate people, but I love gatherings. Isn't it ironic? Okay, Kevin Smith, welcome to our show. Thanks for having Good morning. How are you feeling today? It's very hot here. How are you? Good, good. I'm in a great place, man. My mental health a few months ago was in a terrible place, but I'm feeling fantastic today. And good to hear you're doing better. Okay, doke. Okay. Now, for those not in the know, please enlighten them. What is Hollywood Babylon? And what can you say or not about what will be in store for your shows coming up at your new cinema? And what is your Hollywood Babylon show all about at the Smod Castle Cinema in Atlantic Heights in New Jersey? So um, I've been doing a podcast uh, with my friend Ralph Garman for the better part of, oh, I guess 13 years at this point, maybe more. Um, You know, I started podcasting back in 1990. No, 2007, that's when I began. So I've been podcasting for about 16 years now. And one of the shows that I've been doing for almost as long is a show called Hollywood Babylon, which is me and my friend Ralph Garman just uh, sitting around in a live forum, usually the improv uh, in Hollywood, um, talking about pop culture, movies, making jokes. It's like a cabaret podcast, real fun. So, you know, once you got a room full of people, you know, it's incumbent upon you to try to, keep them laughing and whatnot. So I've done plenty of podcasts where you do them at home with your friend and there's no audience, so you could just meander. But Hollywood Babylon tends to be a lot sharper because uh, we're trying to make a room full of people laugh. And I'm bringing it to my movie theater. I, I bought my hometown movie theater in the town of Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, down the shore, as we say. And it's the movie theater I grew up uh, going to the movies uh, at. And so back in October, me and my friends bought it. So aside from showing movies, uh, current movies aside from showing my movies like last week we showed an uncut version of jersey girl and had the little girl who played the jersey girl raquel castro come in from long island and and, uh and do the q a um we we do live shows like i do i've done my fat man beyond podcast there with mark bernardin and this is the second time we're doing hollywood babylon me and ralph garman uh at smog castle cinemas you can get tickets at smogcastlecinemas.com uh, you know, it's it's a podcast where uh, if you don't leave laughing, then we've failed to do our jobs, and, and we've been doing our jobs pretty well for about 13 years now. Mm-hmm. And what led you to this new and different direction for you with Hollywood Babylon? And please talk about the choice and significance of your chosen title, Babylon, and what it has to do with Hollywood. Uh, basically, my friend Ralph Garman uh, used to be on K-Rock, uh, which was like the number one radio station in L.A. And he would do a segment called the Showbiz Beat, where he would just do entertainment news. And uh, I, whenever I came on uh, K-Rock to promote the Kevin and Bean Morning Show, to promote whatever movies I was working on, I would always stick around and do the Showbiz Beat with Ralph, because it was always so much fun. So one day Ralph was like, how about we do a pilot for you know the Showbiz Beat by itself that we could do on Saturdays on the radio? And I was all for it. We recorded a pilot, and then uh, folks at K-Rock were like, nobody wants to hear people talk on the radio anymore. Mm-hmm. And this was at the advent of podcasting. So we're talking like 2007, 2008, 2000, well, really probably 2009. So um, I had a little podcast theater in Los Angeles called Smot Castle. And um, I, it, Ralph was like, what if we did the show live at your little theater? It was only 50-seater. So I was like, yeah, let's, let's absolutely do it. We couldn't call it the Showbiz Beat because that was owned by K-Rock. So he's like, we need to think of a new name. And I was like, what, what, what if we called it Hollywood Babylon? And uh, he, he loved it and went for it. So it grew from that little 50-seat theater to uh, we moved up to the John Lovitz Theater and played at City Walk for years, and then we moved to the Improv. Oh, Lord, for about almost 10 years we did the show there. And the whole time we would tour it as well around the country and internationally like we sold out the apollo in london the apollo theater is like a six thousand seater so it grew a, a large audience it went from like this uh, tiny show that we would do in los angeles for a local crowd to to worldwide and um you know it's it has been uh, a side hustle of mine for for a while now you know normally i'm a filmmaker by trade but 
talking about movies, you know, loving movies and entertainment. That's what kind of led me toward filmmaking in the first place. So you know, the, the notion of us sitting up there and talking about our Hollywood betters and making fun of them has long been a, a source of fun uh, for me in my life and, and profitable as hell, too. And I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts about your life journey from Clerks through the years to where you've been and where you think you're headed into the future? I can't believe I'm still doing it. Like, I can't <laughs> believe people still care what I have to say or, or talk about. Like, when I started my career with Clerks, you know, it was a little black and white movie. I was 23 years old. I made it with my friends. And I did not expect that the world would see it. I thought a bunch of people in New Jersey would see it. But um, it, it kind of introduced me to the world. And then I just, once my foot was in the door, I kept it there. And, you know, I've done, I think at this point, I'm up to 15, 16 movies. Um, but making movies was uh, led to other things, you know, because when you make a film, generally, if you take it to a film festival, you stand on stage and answer questions about it. I had this whole high side hustle as a Q&A guy. So I would just go up on stage and talk about making movies. I now make more standing on a stage talking about making movies than I do actually making movies. Mm -hmm. And what developed out of the Q&A shows that I've done, because I've done them everywhere, like the biggest one I ever did probably, or the most prestigious, I should say, was Carnegie Hall, sold out Carnegie Hall in mm -hmm. 2009. Mm -hmm. So from those shows came the notion of doing the podcast. So at first I would do podcasts at home with my friends. And then we started doing them live on stage. I remember when I first took Smodcast, which is one of the podcasts I used to do, out on the road, we had to explain to comedy clubs what it was. They're like, what do you mean? You're not going to stand up and do, and do jokes? And we're like, no, I sit down and I talk to my friends. We don't really even talk to the audience. So uh, we were some of the first people that put the lock podcasts into like comedy clubs and theaters. Now everybody's got a podcast and stuff. So, uh, you know, I've, I've always been able to diversify and, and find interesting things to do that make me happy and, and seem to make the audience happy at the same time. And I think that's attributed to my what's attributed to my uh, longevity, like or contributed to my longevity. Um, uh, you know, if you don't like one thing I do, you know, just wait five minutes. I'll be doing <laughs> something else and you might like that as well. <laughs> and when Kevin Smith looks in the mirror, what does he see? I'm an old man now. A lot of white hairs in the beard, man. I'm 52. I'm going to be 53 in August. And so, you know, I, I can't believe I, I'm still making a living doing this. Like, uh, we just passed the 30th anniversary of when we started shooting Clerks back in March. So in January, it'll be the 30th anniversary of when we went to Sundance and the movie got seen and bought. And that's when my career began in earnest. So, uh, you know, you don't feel the age uh, so much, uh, but you see it. Uh, on the face and now uh, there's a lot of white hairs that, that are just gentrifying my beard that I just can't get rid of so uh, I'm, I uh, I see an old man at this point but an old man who still does uh, you know young stuff uh, and, and has been lucky enough to make a living out of uh, doing the things that he would have done for free anyway <laughs> okay thank you so much Kevin Smith for calling into our show such a pleasure yeah tell him to come and see us in Atlantic Highlands Podcastle Cinemas you get tickets at smodcastlecinemas.com. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. And the upcoming offerings of Kevin Smith's Smodcastle Cinemas are online at atlanticcinemas.com. You're listening to Arts Express, and coming up next... Hi, my name's Brett Gregory, and I'm an independent screenwriter, director, and producer in Manchester in the UK. My debut release is the working-class art house feature film Nobody Loves You and You Don't Deserve to Exist, which is currently available in the US and the UK on Amazon Prime, Apple TV and Tubi. A former lecturer in film and cultural studies, I also write about the academic study of film and cinema with the aim of promoting the subject, its ideas and development to a wider audience. What follows is my review of John White's British Cinema and a Divided Nation published by Edinburgh University Press in 2023. The history of the world is but the biopics of great men. One of the joys of this academic monograph is that it reminds us that the field of cinema studies, through the macro lens of research, theory and perspective, can introduce us to narratives of knowledge, understanding and experience which stretch far beyond the edges of the screen. 
Here, John White unfurls an ambitious tapestry of 500 years of history, politics, economics and culture as related to us by a selection of 21st century British feature films. Moreover, interweaving itself through their tall and terrible tales of wealth, poverty, love and war is a myth which millions of us still believe in today. A quaint oxymoron which tens of thousands are still prepared to die for. The United Kingdom is two nations between whom there is no intercourse and no sympathy, wrote Disraeli about the ruling class and the working class in his novel Sybil in 1845. 100 years later, between 1945 and the late 1970s, Professor Pat Thane argues that, following three successful decades of the welfare state and its free provision of healthcare, education, housing, living allowances and state pensions, the chasm of quality and quantity of life between the rich and poor actually began to narrow. This truly egalitarian post-war relationship between the nation and its citizens, a social contract intrinsically binding one another to a shared sense of security, belonging and liberty, turned out to be, tragically, just a fleeting dalliance, however, when, in 1979, Margaret Thatcher came to power. A copy of Friedrich Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty tucked away in her handbag. Most memorably, under the direction of her Conservative government, the British state, the police, the judiciary and the right-wing press launched a vicious, vindictive and ultimately victorious assault upon what they perceived to be their biggest obstacle to socio-economic progress, the democratic entitlements of the National Union of Mine Workers during the miners' strike in 1984-85. In turn, by way of the newly formulated Trade Union Act in 1984, every member of every other trade union up and down the country shuddered. This once-in-a-lifetime lightning war left mining communities decimated across the north of England in particular. Furthermore, the fuse of fast-burn capitalism had been lit and an unceasing bonfire of workers' rights and protections began to rage. As cherished public services such as British Gas and British Telecom were packaged and privatised throughout the 1980s, the neoliberalist deforestation of the British way of life commenced. Now, in the first quarter of the 21st century, the UK workforce, unable to hear itself speak above the incessant beat of global competitiveness, productivity, efficiency and convenience, has been gifted one of the postmodern wonders of the world, the gig economy. As White explores in Ken Loach's Sorry We Missed You from 2019, Orwellian cyber squealers would have us believe that this newfangled way of working is going to make entrepreneurs of us all, liberating us from silly distractions such as timekeeping, lunch breaks and rest, as well as stupid administrative chores like sick pay, holiday pay, redundancy pay and a pension. Moreover, we are reassured that it isn't just delivery drivers, warehouse operatives and online strippers who can benefit from this cornucopia of late-stage capitalism. Lecturers, journalists and registered nurses, to name but a few, are all invited to the party as well. These days, many Britons, particularly the young adults I used to teach, reluctantly accept that we no longer live in a society at all, but instead precariously function, hand-to-mouth, on the outskirts of a network of simulated marketplaces where absolutely everything is a commodity to buy or sell, manage or service. Our labour, our time, our bodies, our dreams. According to the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Zizek, what we are experiencing here is called the direct commodification of experience itself. While the mainstream British media continues to gawk at the peacocking of North American bazillionaires such as Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, as if their vanity, gluttony and hubris are something to aspire to, White cites Shoshana Zuboff's solemn observation that around the world there are concentrations of wealth, knowledge and power unprecedented in human history. Indeed, according to the International Monetary Fund, the United Kingdom is the fifth British nation in the world with $2.6 trillion in its coffers. But if this ranking is accurate, 
Then why in 2014 did Oxfam declare the five richest families in the country to be wealthier than the bottom 20% of the entire population, i.e. 12.6 million people? Furthermore, why in 2020 was it reported by Health Equity in England that in some regions more than one child in two is growing up in poverty? Crucially, the academic broadcasters Lansley and Mack ask, why is Great Britain one of the most unequal and socially fragile countries in the world today? Believe it or not, the official rationale behind these stark socio-economic inequalities was actually submitted to the British public on May the 6th, 2023, in the form of a £100 million multi-venue theatre production called The Coronation of King Charles III. The mise-en-scene for this historic live performance featured the full artillery of ancient and modern regalia, including the Diamond Jubilee State Coach at £3.2 million, St Edward's Crown at £45 million, and, famously, the Sword of State at £500,000. In turn, an original signature soundtrack was composed by Lord Lloyd Webber. A commemorative poem was scripted by the Poet Laureate Simon Armitage CBE, and coronation costumes were designed by Bruce Oldfield, OBE. Moreover, as good fortune would have it, the entire British establishment was able to make itself available to serve as the supporting cast. Prince and princesses, lords and ladies, political leaders, military leaders, religious leaders, all proudly draped in the nation's traditional liveries of hereditary exceptionalism and pomposity. As stated in the title of John White's rigorous and thought-provoking book, its deep-seated divisions reinforced by institutions like the royal family, which have defined the United Kingdom's psyche, character, outlook and actions throughout the ages. Whether it is in terms of wealth, power or nationalism, social class, regionalism or education, gender, ethnicity or sexuality, there has always been an obsessive and oppressive belief in binary oppositions, here and there, then and now, us and them, self and other. Mike Lee's Peterloo from 2018 dramatises one of the most despicable events in the country's political history. In 1819, over 60,000 working men, women and children gathered in Manchester at midday to demand parliamentary reform and an extension of voting rights. By 2pm, however, they had been ruthlessly cut down by the sabres of the mounted 15th Hussars at the behest of wealthy landowner, factory owner and magistrate William Hulton. 18 protesters were slain and 700 were maimed. In the immediate aftermath of this massacre, the British government, haunted by the ideological alternatives thrown up by the French Revolution 25 years earlier, was quick to enforce its sovereignty and suppress any further political dissent from the public. Draconian acts of parliament were hurried through in a manner which would cause our current Home Secretary and Tory Ultra, Suella Braverman, to positively swoon. Attendance numbers at parish political meetings, for instance, were restricted. The judicial powers of magistrates trying the cases of reformers were expanded and the taxes imposed on newspapers were increased so they became too expensive for ordinary people to buy. Significantly, however, strategies for surveillance and espionage were also endorsed by the authorities and pursued by a network of spies, informants and agent provocateurs in an effort to deny, or at least to undermine, the ability of the country's citizenry to express, discuss or even understand their freedom to protest. This may seem like some dusty cloak and dagger yarn from the distant past, but in order to illustrate how little the British state has evolved as a democratic entity over the last 200 years, White draws our attention to the ongoing undercover policing inquiry which began in 2015. That is, quite incredibly, it has been revealed that serving Metropolitan Police officers such as Mark Kennedy, also known as Mark Stone and or Mark Flash, were instructed by their superiors between 2003 and 2010 to pose as political activists in order to infiltrate and surveil environmental campaign networks such as Climate Camp. In turn, 
with their superiors' knowledge, a number of these police officers entered sexual relationships with female activists as a part of their undercover duties, even fathering children with them, before suddenly skulking back into the shadowy system from whence they came. As Mike Lee himself writes in the foreword to Peterloo, the story of the Manchester Massacre in 2018, despite the spread of universal suffrage across larger parts of the globe, poverty, inequality, suppression of press freedom, indiscriminate surveillance and attacks on legitimate protests by brutal regimes are all on the rise. The scope of John White's meticulous research and diligent critical application can only be lightly brushed by the fingertips of this overeager review. For example, in the 16th century, we are led along the schism between women and men under patriarchy and Protestantism in Mary Queen of Scots from 2018. In the 20th century, we revisit the genocide which defined the partitioning of India and Pakistan under Mountbatten's rule in Viceroy's House from 2017. And in the 21st century, we are urged to heed the dark satanic mills of globalised industrial farming that churn up our country's green and pleasant land in The Leveling and Dark River from 2017. In conclusion, the United Kingdom can be seen to be a nation which stands divided upon an historical legacy of conflict, violence and oppression, fuelled by a fear of the masses of the other, of what they might think and of what they could do. Following 13 years of Tory-led austerity cuts, the bigotry and bloodshed of Brexit, the crimes committed in the name of Covid and the current crippling cost of living crisis, thoughts about political reform and even revolt have begun to creep into the minds of ordinary, exhausted citizens, especially those who work in the public sector. It is hoped, at the very least, and in this particular context, that the commercialised conservatism which generally characterises the British film industry, can be circumvented so more original feature films are able to harness and frame the real-world hopes and fears of the country. John White's British cinema and a divided nation makes you feel strangely patriotic that, through passion, persistence and protest, there is still something worth fighting for. As a result, it is highly recommended and it's available in paperback in the UK and US from August 2023. And Brett's presentation you just heard will appear in August on Counterfire at counterfire.org, described as, quote, a revolutionary socialist organization committed to transforming society from one based on the profit motive to one built on the needs of working people. Hello, everybody. This is Graham Nash from the Hollies and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Crosby, Nash and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Yes, I've been in a lot of bands. I want to say aloha and fond wishes to everybody listening to Arts Express.
Express. Now what we're going to do is we're going to raise our hands in the air and pull down fists full of energy and we're going to say Harambe because that means let's all pull together. Ready? Hi, this is Jack Shalom. It's not every day that you get to meet a truly remarkable person, not a Marvel movie comic book hero, but a real-life, flesh-and-blood full human being. In the recent film documentary, Veronica White, A Life in the Key of the Community, executive producer Julius Hollingsworth and director Chuck Moss give viewers the privilege of becoming acquainted with a truly extraordinary woman. I'm happy to have as my guest today, executive producer Julius Hollingsworth and director Chuck Moss. Hi, Julius. Hello, how are you? And hi, Chuck. Hey, Jack, thanks for having us. Chuck, Julius, now the film opens with Veronica White singing. Tell us about Veronica White. Veronica White was an amazing woman who made her mark while also being very content simply to bring people together rather than to toot her own horn. And that was what was remarkable about her. She had threads in so many communities and turns out she was the linchpin. Veronica was a wonderful singer. She was someone who played 12 instruments she was a community activist who was a healer, a Reiki person. She was a teacher of students. And magically, she was a supporter of people. She was like the wind beneath other people's wings. The title of the film is A Life in the Key of the Community. So exactly which community and communities are we talking of? I knew Veronica from my time uh, as a community producer at Ricarts, and it was quite the serendipitous thing where I happened to meet her outside of the framework of Brick, and we started to come together just to see what we could do to, you know, creatively um, during the pandemic. When I found out that she passed away, the idea of a documentary seemed to simply coalesce around her many different communities. And frankly, I was shocked because who'd have thunk? Because she did not wear her gravitas on her sleeve. It was only revealed through the very presence that she was able to communicate through her assisting other people. And then you gradually started to understand the magnitude of who she was. No one knew that she was from a famous, iconic musical family. Yeah, she was Thelonious Monk's niece, and that's not what she led with. She led with her spirit, her energy. I knew Veronica from the age of 13 or 14. I knew her in a teenage performing arts workshop that was at Rochdale Center in Queens. Um, She lived in uh, Rochdale at one point. We did a play together and then she went on to music and art and we kept in contact over the years. Wonderful person, a wonderful performing artist who not only performed but was willing to share her gifts with other people and enable them to grow. She had a way of flowing around difficulty and still sticking to purpose of where she wanted to go. One of the things I was really struck by when I watched the film was you kept unfolding more and more about her. It starts off, you think, oh, this is going to be about Veronica White, a singer. And then all of a sudden you learn a little more. And, and well, she's really a pretty complete musician. And then you talk about that she plays 
12 different instruments, including the piano, the drums, the trumpet, and finally the harp that she decided was her true <laughs> instrument. And of course, she was the, the niece of Monk. Did she ever talk about what she had learned from Monk or anything that she took from him? My sense is that she was inspired by T.S. Monk in a peripheral, amorphous kind of way. Also, T.S. Monk, the drummer. I think she was inspired to pursue her curiosity and, and her desire to develop a tactile relationship with different instruments. It's interesting, growing up in that kind of environment, I think most people would want to feel that they had to measure up but I think for her, it was more a, a sense of touching different kinds of expression and having that expression flow through her. I mean, for someone who could sing like she did, she performed on stage in, you know, on tour with groups. And she also would perform in the park with instruments that she was experimenting with. So I think it was interesting that the relationship that she had with her her famous family was not competitive. It was just, it gave her a source of wonder and experimentation. And But it was meant not necessarily to promote herself, but to flow through her to inspire others around her. What I was so amazed at was that she was not only a musician, but as you show in your film, she's a complete artist in every way. She's doing visual art, she's doing dance, she's doing glass sculpture. Uh, what, was she always like that when you knew her when you were younger? I, I didn't know that she did all those other things, only after the fact, but I, I did, you know, as time went on, I did know that she was a videographer uh, uh, you know, and a producer at Brick, and you know, she said, oh, let's let's we could do some acting classes. You could, we could, we could do that. Um, so she, she even people that were her friends, she, oh, let's figure out how we can make this work for you. So I am so happy to be a part of this because uh, we need more of that in the art world. She seems to be sort of a, a, a renaissance kind of woman in a way, isn't she? And she's got that inner artistic impulse that she's fearless about expressing in any possible way she could. And, and she says in the film, yeah, you, you know, try it. You might be good at it. You might not. But she's fearless about trying it. And she turned out to be very good at so many things. What did she leave behind in terms of institutions and connections? She left behind with all of her communities a sense of what was possible, not only in terms of the path ahead, but the consequences of not trying. You know, I think everyone got the sense from Veronica that the world is not a better place if you don't attempt something. And clearly her mission was to uh, inspire people for change, positive social change, by at least making an attempt to express yourself. And I think, you know, that's, that's the legacy that she was very interested in. And it's not exactly clear how she became aware that that was her mission and her legacy, but that was, it was clear that people were left with that impression, that they that they should be empowered to make attempts to express themselves creatively and artistically to make their mark in the world. Although she, she had many people that she empowered, but um, she did not have her own children, you know, natural children. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there were kids that, that she obviously left an impact on and taught and mentored, you know. In the film, there's... Uh... A, a lovely young piano student of hers named Camilla Seals. And I thought that was kind of the most amazing testament that Camilla could talk to just what kind of artistic maturity she had gained from 
being taught by Veronica and how she really got taught how to persevere through through obstacles to achieve an artistic vision, and that that was very touching. Jack, I ha- I have to say, just in the interest of making the film, there were almost as many things that got cut of value that are almost a, a film in itself. Camille's story is just what we saw of Camille is just a small portion of that. Veronica had some health challenges that got worse as time went on. There was a point where uh, Veronica was uh, stricken and on the floor and yet attempted to some degree to still instruct Camille with her lesson while she was stricken and unable to get up off the floor. And that that is just, you know, one of those things that, you know, certainly left people like Camille and some of the other people that Veronica came in touch with, you know, that's that's a lifelong element of inspiration. People talk about people having spiritual children, right? And I think like somebody else we know, <laughs> she she had spiritual children. She had spiritual children. She had people that that were nurtured by her and mothered and cared for in in the most essential way. And as as to grow and be open and be fully yourself and help others to be kind and help others, which is to me is essential in being an artist. That, that was what came across so well, was that she was so talented in so many areas of art, but it was never art for art's sake. It was always art for a reason. Right. The, you know, the thing that really came through with Veronica was her sense of community cohesion. And the art, I think, was a thread to help connect people. She did so many different types of work, but it was never about promoting herself necessarily. And that was what was so selfless about her. When we screened her film, the visceral response from audience members was just palpable. And I think each of us who saw that really got the idea that this film really has a sense to you know, a chance to tie people together with purpose. You have a scene there where Veronica is working with an organization called the Future Historical Society, which is kind of, it's funny, because it's almost like, um, what do they call that? It's a contradiction. It's almost an oxymoron. The Future Historical? What are we talking about here? But that kind of uh, points out her, her sense of irony. And she, she wrote a song. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that came up in that, it was clear during that rehearsal period of the Future Historical Society that some of the songs that she was rehearsing with people that she brought together were not exactly on key. But one of the things that resonated was not that it was perhaps not perfectly on key, but how it pulled those people together who were performing it, who were not artists in their own right. It was like a Pete Seeger moment (laughs) in its own way. There's a really interesting scene at Coney Island where Veronica's being baptized. Can can you tell me more about that? Was, Was she always a member of the church? Was this something new? I think that was um, something that she was coming to. I think it was something that it was an evolving journey for her. The uh, baptism scene that you mentioned certainly did seem to typify all of Veronica. That scene actually, you know, we, we didn't necessarily plan on that scene, but when that material became available... And Julius and I looked at those images. We put the images together in a sequence that we thought made sense. And it was a surreal moment when the narrative that Julius spoke in his typical, elegant manner, we put that script together almost effortlessly. Mm. 
And when I look back at it, I'm like, oh my God, that was one of those spiritual moments that in my mind was typical of the life that Veronica lived. I'd also like to, you know, shout out to Faye Walker Davis and Sedegra who searched around and found that wonderful footage. Well, as we wrap up, anything else you'd like to add? Well, people who knew Veronica are forever impacted. The hope is that we can get this film out to film festivals and other screenings so that a larger community of people can be impacted and inspired by the personality that Veronica was so that they can make similar movements in their own lives and their own communities. I think, I think it's all been said. Uh, <laughs> I, love alarm, love alarm, love alarm. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, 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 love is the message. <laughs> that was uh, Veronica's message to people and community. Love. Thanks, Julius. Well, thank you for bringing such a remarkable person to our attention. I can only wish I had gotten to meet her, and in a way now I have. <laughs> I've been speaking with Chuck Moss, director and Julius Hollingsworth, executive producer of the recent film documentary, Veronica White, A Life in the Key of the Community. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.